Hey, good morning. Glad you could watch. Uh, as you know, we go through um, a number of different things on our podcast. We go through verse-by-verse teachings through the various books of the Bible. Right now, we are doing First John and also the book of Acts. Um, we um, also take time to do prophecy briefs and updates and things like that. We talk about this topic of prophecy a lot. Um, we uh, also like to take time periodically to answer questions that come in through the comments or through emails. I've printed out a couple of emails that have uh, been sort of scratching notes on in that that I'd like to try and get to sometime soon. As a matter of fact, probably this week what I'd like to do is maybe take a few of our episodes and answer some of the questions and comments that have come in. Uh, first off, I really appreciate that you all watch and take the time to think through some of these ideas and ask questions and Uh, I love that. The interactions, I think, are great for both of us. It keeps me sharp. It hopefully allows me to speak to some issues that maybe a number of folks are wrestling with or wondering about or trying to figure out. And so it's a great way for iron to sharpen iron. Even though we can't be sitting in the same room, in a way, we can sort of still connect this way. So I appreciate the fact that you all take time to... Uh, to not only watch, but also to interact and engage. And so I think this week what I'd like to do, uh, since I've got a few of these things piled up and I've, I've finally started to get a little time to sit down and maybe um, spend a little more time looking at them, um, I'd like to do a few Q&As this week. And so we'll, we'll do a few of those and, uh, and see how it goes. But the first one I'd like to take actually uh, deals with the question um, I've mentioned uh, periodically when we come to uh, the subject of the birth of the church. Uh, uh, the question arises based on different kinds of um, dispensational views. I'll talk about that briefly in a second. Um, as to where, whether the church was born in Acts chapter 2 or in Acts chapter 9 with the conversion of Paul, of Saul of Tarsus, uh, who we know better as Paul. Uh, and so uh, this is a question that I think probably deserves, uh, you know, uh, uh, an opportunity to take a minute to speak to you. So um, let me start by saying that um, this is a discussion that I think is born out of a genuine desire to rightly divide the word of truth. And I say that because sometimes people ask questions because they just like to sound erudite or they like to stir up, you know, um, issues and stuff and all that. Um, And this is, you know, you never know everybody's motivation, but when I've come across people that have been pretty staunchly on the side of of an Acts chapter 9 birth of the church, as opposed to an Acts chapter 2, I have found that it has been born of real sincerity. I have a pastor friend, for example, who who holds pretty solidly, and he's researched a lot, and he's landed on Acts chapter 9 is what he believes to be the, um, the, the point where the church was truly born. Uh, as opposed to the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And it's it's genuinely sincere. He makes a good case. And it's not uh, to try and sound like he's on the fringe. It's, no, after a careful study of Scripture, that's where he landed. Uh, and likewise, many people have landed on Acts chapter 2 um, with... Uh, um, you know, after careful study in that. And so I thought I would just speak to it today, not to, uh, I, I don't know that I'll be the defining voice on the issue. I, I know I won't be, but, um, but that said, just to kind of explain a little bit about it and, uh, and, and why that is a, a question. I don't want to say a point of contention. I suppose for some it could be, but again, with the, um, you know, I think these things are generally studied in good faith. Why not talk about them and explain them a little bit? Uh, I mentioned the word dispensational uh, a moment ago. The idea of dispensationalism uh, speaks to the idea that God has dealt with man through various administrations or dispensations. Uh, My friend I mentioned a moment ago, he uh, uh, likes to call them economies. It's a fair word too. The idea that God has dealt differently 
with, uh, with man as the ages have gone by, in particular in seven covenants. Uh, the first being that of innocence in the garden, uh, conscience after the fall, um, uh, human government. Uh, we uh, ultimately get to the, uh, through the promises as we see Abraham being called uh, law under Moses, grace, and then finally the last would be under the millennial kingdom. Uh, and so there is something to be said about that. Um, I, I would land on the side of dispensational. I do think that uh, straightforward reading of the text of the scripture and taking it uh, literally, I, I like to say seriously, I borrow from Chuck Missler on this, I like to say seriously, because when you say literally, sometimes people go to passages like, um, you know, he'll hide you under the shadow of his wings. And well, that means God has wings then. No, I mean, that's metaphorical. We get that. But uh, so I, I take the Bible seriously, where it's where it can be taken literally, and that's the plain sense Then I do. Uh, and where it is clearly allegorical or metaphorical or something like that, um, we see that for what it is, and we therefore interpret it that way. And so, uh, that being said, we we recognize that as we I would say that if you read through the scriptures, plain sense straight through, uh, I think it it makes sense that God deals differently at different times, um, and uh, commensurate with that, kind of at the heart of that is a particular view that there are distinct groups in Scripture, in particular, you could say three, but really two in terms of God's um, um, uh, working through. In the Old Testament, he worked through the Jews under the Old Covenant. Uh, And his intention was to, obviously, as we see the pages unfold, is for Israel to be his representatives on earth. However, after uh, a certain point in history, uh, when, when Israel rejected her Messiah, for a time she is put on hold and God works through the church. Now I say put on hold because Israel is not forsaken. She's not cast off. She's not. Uh, she's not forfeited her promises that God has made to her. Not the least of which being the promise of the millennium, that final dispensation. Um, but instead, she's put on hold for a period of time, and God then works through this entity called the church, which, as Paul says in Ephesians two fourteen, is this entity that is. Uh, the result of God breaking down the wall of separation between Jew and Gentile and bringing them together into one body, the church. The third group that I mentioned would be unsaved people, which God is, you know, providentially working through and, and, and all that, but they're not his people like Israel and the church would be. And so I, there's two really, but I just to, just to include that third group there is, is what they are. But um, And as we were before we knew Christ. And so that being said... Um, when we talk about dispensationalism, there is the seven uh, dispensations that are generally pointed to. I would say that even if you don't subscribe to seven covenants, it is important, I would say necessary, to a proper understanding of Scripture and God's unfolding plan through the Scripture to at least be dispens- what I call dispensational enough, where you can at least recognize there are two groups, Israel and the church, and they are mutually exclusive in Scripture. Um, promises that are made to Israel are not forfeited and handed over to the church. And that is one of the reasons why it is important to make sure we make this distinction between these two mutually exclusive groups. Now, at the end, we do, as Paul says, as those grafted on the vine as Gentiles, uh, and, and, and even just broadly speaking, as the church and Israel, even separately, one day, we do all stand together before the Lord. But in terms of his dealing with these groups... If we blend them, if we sort of assume one is gone forever and absorbed into the other, um, in the course of unfolding human uh, history events, then when we come to things like the rapture, the second coming, the millennial kingdom, 
um, these things as they're described, particularly the millennial kingdom when it's described in the Old Testament. Um, it, it changes our understanding of what these things are about, how they unfold, what their culmination looks like, um, who's in them, who's included, who's not included, things like that. And so I think it becomes really paramount that we understand uh, that, you know, I would suggest a proper reading of Scripture would lead us to at least some kind of dispensational view, um, um, which, you know, again, to kind of go out there a little bit and just in, for the sake of transparency, I think also leads to a premillennial view. I think it leads to a uh, the idea that there's a literal thousand-year reign, that Christ returns and establishes it, even that the church is raptured prior to that for reasons that are very important that we'll talk about. And I believe I'm going to try and get to that in an episode this week in response to another email. So anyway, so that's a thumbnail sketch of dispensationalism, which gives us enough of a platform to talk to the idea of the church in Acts 2 or, or 9. Um when, when the discussion of, act, uh, of the church starting in, in Acts chapter 9 comes into uh, the fore, it is primarily based on the idea that Paul, by his own admission, twice, actually in Romans 11 and then in Galatians 2, speaks of himself as an apostle to the Gentiles. Uh, and since in Acts chapter 2, the argument would go... Um, Acts chapter 2 would still be technically under the Old Covenant because it is in Jerusalem and is primarily to the Jews. Um, I don't know whether a, a, uh, a person in, a, uh, in an Acts 9 view would necessarily say that no Gentiles uh, came to Christ prior um, because I don't think you could say that because clearly some Gentiles prior to Paul's conversion do come. Uh, and it's not, uh, it becomes a much more open door after his conversion uh, and such, but the idea that uh, the church really does not come into view until Acts chapter nine is rooted in the idea that Israel is really in view up until that point, until the conversion of Paul. But again, as I just was pointing out, when you think of Acts chapter eight with Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, when you go to Acts chapter two, uh, where uh, the Holy Spirit falls upon uh, these hundred and twenty, uh, the apostles come out and begin to preach the gospel, uh, and and. Uh, begin to speak in tongues, I should say, and uh, just glorifying God. Um, among the group that is gathered around it uh, at Pentecost uh, are not only Jews from all over the known world, but also, as it says in Acts chapter 2, uh, in verse, um, verse 11, uh, after naming all these groups that are represented out there uh, hearing the, the apostles speak in tongues, verse 11 says, uh, they are, uh, there are both Jews and proselytes, Okay, proselytes are non-Jews who convert to Judaism in order to um, join in the covenants uh, under Israel and that, but they are not ethnically Jewish, and that's significant. Um, and so they're proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, Arabians, I should say, and, and, um, and they're, they're hearing these wonderful works of God being proclaimed. Um, again, Acts 8, the Ethiopian eunuch. Uh, even in Jesus' own ministry, while he was on the earth, there are, gen there are Greeks who come and want to see Jesus. Um, uh, and, and so built into this discussion is the idea that uh, since Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles, the church can't have started until Acts chapter 9. Uh, again, Paul declares himself in Galatians 2. He says, Peter is an apostle to the circumcised, and I'm an apostle to the uncircumcised. Um, I think that the the desire to be specific about the birth of the church in either one of these two places um, is born again out of a uh, 
born again. It's born of a uh, uh, a desire to be accurate in, in in interpreting the scripture, which obviously is applaudable. That's good. That is commendable. Um, however, the truth of the matter is, is that when it comes to who ministers to the Gentiles, it's not as cut and dry as uh, as as a uh, as an Acts nine perspective might take. Um, for example, it's Peter that opens the door to the Gentiles. Uh, there are Gentiles prior to Paul who gets saved. Uh, in the Acts fifteen council of the church, the first council there at Jerusalem, uh, Peter is the one who ultimately, in uh, describing um, how, in his own experience, how Cornelius and his household <clears throat> came to Christ, uh, were saved um, without going through Moses. <clears throat> it's Peter who makes the comment that, um, that we as Jews will be saved in the same way as they are going forward and that kind of thing. Uh, as a matter of fact, on that subject of salvation, the idea of the dispensations of, of law and grace, um, there is a lot made by 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 people that hold, um, um, I've, I've been hesitating to use the word hyper dispensational because sometimes that can be taken as sort of a uh, uh, an insult. I don't I don't mean it to be that. It's just but in terms of explaining levels of dispensationalism, hyper is kind of what we're talking about here. The idea that the church absolutely started with the conversion of Paul, um, but built into that argument is the discussion that there is an old covenant way of getting saved and a new covenant way of getting saved. Now again, not everybody in all these camps necessarily holds that ironclad view, but it is representative of of the view of many within that that camp, is that Peter, John, the Gospels, these writings in the New Testament uh, really are focused on the Jews. The church is different. Paul writes to the church. The epistles of Paul are written to the church. And therefore, that's where we need to spend our time because this is what speaks to the church, not the other stuff. Again, not that people wouldn't say you can't learn things from the other books, passages, Old Covenant, but they are not really for us. It's Paul's writings that are for us. Uh, And some, again, have gone far enough to say that there's essentially two different modes of salvation in this. Not everybody says that. Again, I'm not trying to be fair. I I am trying to be fair. But uh, I'm not trying to put words in anybody's mouth. But the view tends to follow logically that therefore there must be two different uh, modes by or two different means by which people can be saved, one under the old covenant and a new covenant that is uh, a new way of uh, coming to, to, cry, to, to, to being saved. Um, the problem with that, the, the, the difficulty with that, is that it presents essentially two different gospels. Well, we would, I would say Paul himself speaks to that issue in Galatians chapter 3, where he speaks about the law. If we, matter of fact, if we combine Paul's writings in Romans and Galatians and get a nice full picture of the purpose of the law, it was never to save anybody because nobody could be saved by it. We've spent a little time recently talking about this. Um, and, um, um, but just briefly to reiterate, uh, Paul makes a dramatic case in Romans that, um, uh, and in Galatians, he makes a big dramatic case of two covenants of, uh, you know, of, of the two uh, wives of Abraham and that. One is by faith, one is through works and such. Um, and the one is cast out. Right, so the one uh, representing works, Hagar is cast out. In Romans, uh, Paul very fully explains the idea that the gospel is that um, the gospel has been consistent throughout Scripture. In other words, nobody has ever been saved by the law because that was never the capacity of the law. 
or the, our capacity to not keep it, you know, was the problem with the law. And so therefore the law, rather than bringing life, actually brought death and condemnation. As a matter of fact, if we go back to the very beginning, uh, we see that God didn't save anyone through the law or even begin to call people through the law. Israel was born of Abraham, who was called by faith out of the earth of the Chaldees and becomes the foundation of the nation that God would build of Israel and then give them the law. And so, uh, again, much more could be said, and we said it many times, and so I'll try to connect links to other videos where we've spoken more fully on the subject of the gospel and grace being the means by which God has always saved people. Uh, I'll include those. But this becomes part of the argument on whether the church is born in Acts chapter 2 or Acts chapter 9. Is the church visibly represented in Acts chapter 2, or is it not until the gospel of grace comes with Paul? I would suggest, and this is my view, is that the church is actually born in Acts chapter 2. Um, this is the event where the Holy Spirit is, out, is poured out, and people are now filled with the Holy Spirit. They're believers. They're born again in the New Testament sense of the word. Um, which is the predominant element of what uh, the church is. Um, and, uh, and there are Gentiles present there, even though the door has not swung open per se, there are Gentiles present in it. Um, we do have a wall of separation broken down at this point. Um, it is not discussed and fully embraced and understood until Acts 15, but that doesn't mean it's not happening prior to that. Uh, and that's a big distinction to make. Um, there's always been an ever-developing, well, I shouldn't say always at this point, now we have the full canon and um, we still discuss some things, but in terms of developing theology and understanding of these things, in the early years, the first few centuries, this was an ongoing process. Things were true prior to whether or not we understood them or embraced them or, or systematized them. Um, the fact that the, the Holy Spirit had now been poured out and people were indwelt by the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2 is a demonstration that the church was now born. And they began to practice as the church, even prior to the larger Gentile population now being invited in. Um, uh, the question may come up, and, and, uh, and I think has come up. Well, if the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is what constitutes a church believer, then why not John 20, when Jesus breathes on the, the apostles and they receive the Holy Spirit? Well, I would suggest again that the idea of, of a new covenant style believer indwelt by the Holy Spirit, I would, and I always have argued this, did take place with the apostles. Um, they would have been the very first of who we would have called uh, somebody of the church age kind of belief. However, uh, there is not, there seems to be something about this event in chapter two of Acts where suddenly now the Holy Spirit is poured out um, in fulfillment of Joel chapter 2 as a sign of the, the last days coming, it seems as though this now becomes a starting point for a new thing that will now carry on until, as Paul would say in, in Romans 11, the fullness of the Gentiles comes in and God once again, as we said earlier, they were on hold, but they once again become the focus through which God works. And that's why in the book of Revelation during the tribulation period, we see the 144,000 Jews from the 12 tribes and such uh, the two witnesses who seem to represent Moses and Elijah if, if they are not actually Moses and Elijah. The signs that they do seem to be indicative of this. Uh, but this is ultimately focusing on Israel. And why not? Because the millennial fulfillment is a fulfillment of a promise to Israel that we benefit from and join in with. But it's a promise made to them. And so again, dispensationally, two different groups, um, again, much more could be said on the idea of the beginning of the church. But it seems to me, and again, this is not a 
something I think to to argue to, to die a hill to die on or to argue uh, divide over and that kind of thing. But it is a great topic to discuss, and discussions no doubt will continue on. But that's intended to give sort of a sense of what the discussion is. Uh, and also, to be fair, where I land on it, and, and to be fair, that there are people that I know and very much respect that land on the other side on this uh, in terms of Acts 2 or 9. They believe in Acts 9 as the starting point for the church. Hey, that's great. It's given us great fodder for great discussion, debate, and, and all these things. And that's, I think, what makes a church healthy and what makes believers um, sharpen each other is to have these discussions and to consider them. Um, now, again, more could be said, but... If you're interested in learning more, you can go to the scripture on this. If you have more specific questions on this, you can certainly send them in to me and I'll do my best to answer them. But I just wanted to kind of speak to that because it came up as a question. That's what the discussion basically revolves around. And so um, you can take that where you will and land where you will on that. But for now, let me go ahead and pray and, uh, and, um, and uh, commend you to the Holy Spirit and the Word of God to go further on this. Father, we thank you and praise you that you have given us your word as, a, uh, as, as the foundation for our understanding of your ways and your workings. And so help us to be students of it. I thank you for those who are and are asking questions and wanting to know more about some of these things. And I just pray that as we open your word together that we'd be able to sort of discover more about these things and come to a conclusion ourselves. Uh, we thank you, Father, for uh, the fact that you have um, given us such a rich tradition and heritage in the church of debating uh, big issues. And so help us, Father, to, um, to sort of engage in that tradition and not be casual about our faith, but to dig in. Thank you, Father. We love you. We praise you and bless you for these things. And we ask you just to take hold of our hearts and help us to dive ever deeper into our relationship with you and the word that you've given us. And we just thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the Lord bless you and keep you, make his face to shine upon you, be gracious to you, and give you peace forever. As always, if you have comments, thoughts, questions, you can leave them on our YouTube channel here below in the comments section. Again, I'll try to put links to the passages and other videos where we've spoken about some of these things. Um, you can also go to my website at parsonspad.com where you can watch these videos and comment and email me from there as well. You can also watch these videos on Odyssey. You can subscribe to the audio versions on my website. I should have mentioned that a second ago. Uh, you can go to our website at calvarychapelfranklin.com to learn more about our fellowship here in Middle Tennessee as well. So thanks for watching. God bless you, and we'll catch up with you next time.